Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month, how genome-wide association studies may be strengthened using biological information and the Atlantic Salmon's curious sex determination system. Genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, are the workhorse of quantitative genetics. This technique allows you to test for the effect of multiple genes on a phenotypic trait. And whilst it has had lots of success over the last few decades identifying genes associated with traits, it's based on several assumptions, many of which have recently been called into question. Paul Marjoram at the University of Southern California and his colleagues have written a review this month suggesting possible future directions for GWAS, with a particular focus on using biological information to strengthen its power. Here's Paul. GWAS is kind of an agnostic interrogation of the entire genome. So you take a set of so-called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, you fit as many of those as you can on a so-called SNP chip, which is a little platform on which you use all sorts of clever technology to um, give you the ability to give a sample of DNA from someone, say that you have this allele at this position and the next allele at the next position, et cetera, et cetera. Um, originally across maybe 100,000 or so such um, polymorphic sites, um, these days we're up to about a million or so. Okay, and the idea behind uh, genome-wide association studies is to basically explain variation. Yeah, in an ideal world, you would you would hope to have a situation in which, um, if you were looking at a given disease, um, all of the people with the disease had one particular allele or type of a certain position, and all of the people without a disease had some other type of that position, and then, they, and then you would have a polymorphism that perfectly explained phenotypic variation, the disease status among the population. Of course, that's not what you find, but you hope to find more subtle variations on that theme. The vast majority of phenotypic variation is not yet accounted for, despite these studies. Absolutely. And that's one of the big uh, unknowns at the moment, so-called missing heritability issue. We found many SNPs associated with disease or any other phenotype of interest. They explain some fraction of the variation in the disease phenotype, um, but most of it thus far is unexplained. And one of the questions we're asking ourselves as a community now is, so what's next? How do we find that missing piece? Okay, so the central message in your review article is, is not that we need more GWAS studies, it's that possibly we need to sort of reinvent how we go about them. Well, I would say more it's looking at, well, what do we do next? Given, given that we've explained what we have explained so far using GWAS, doing more GWAS on the same diseases in the same populations wouldn't get you much further. Um, you're sort of faced with two options. And we're not really arguing you should follow both. The first option is that you do go and collect more data. Um, the second option is that you use what biological knowledge you have to better inform your analyses. When SNP chips were designed, they were, for very good reasons, designed to have common polymorphisms, polymorphisms that were relatively common in the population. 
because if you made them rare, then most individuals you interrogated would, by definition, not have those SNPs because they're rare. So in order to maximize the bang for the buck, you want common SNPs on your chip. But the consequence of that is that if disease is caused by a rare SNP, you're going to miss it because of the way you've constructed the chip. And for that reason now, people are collecting sequence data, which is data in which you, in principle, get all of the polymorphisms uh, for a given individual in a given region that you're interrogating, rather than just the common ones. So one arm of the future progress, or one fork in the road, leads to the collection of more data. It's a good thing to do. It needs to be done. The second response, which we're arguing that it should be done as well rather than instead of, is to recognize that SNP chips do an agnostic study. They, they treat all SNPs equally. They don't use biological information, and neither do typically the analyses that are performed on the data from those SNP chips. So we're just arguing that you will have, in principle, more power if you use biology to inform the way you search through the space of SNPs or the possible interactions between SNPs that might be explaining the phenotype. A simple example of that is the um, so-called cursor dimensionality, which is that if you test a large number of polymorphisms in this case, the so-called significance level you need to find, the degree of association between the SNP and the disease phenotype, is higher than it would otherwise be. So one way of using biological information is to inform the test that you use to focus on certain SNPs. So you might choose to focus on SNPs that you know are encoding regions because you think they're much more likely to be relevant when explaining phenotypic variation than SNPs in non-coding regions. To use a, a less agnostic view of which SNPs are likely to be associated with the phenotype. Other than just being more selective with your SNPs, are there any other ways that biology can inform how we go about these studies? Yeah, so the thing we're really arguing for in the paper is to recognize the fact that SNPs don't cause disease, right? A polymorphism at a certain base pair typically does not mean you suddenly get the disease. What it actually does is affect some parameter in a pathway, it affects the rate at which some reaction is occurring, and that ultimately, perhaps in combination, in fact likely in combination with many other such polymorphisms, ultimately leads to causing the disease. So we're arguing that we should put that intermediate piece into the puzzle. We don't go straight from an association between a SNP and a disease. We actually look at how does the SNP affect the pathway which then causes the disease. Um, and in doing so, we would hope and expect that you would have more power in your analysis because you're actually trying to tie the pieces together in the correct way rather than just missing out the middleman, as it were. So that's sort of tying together the, the networks involved in a gene's effect with the GWAS. Yeah, exactly. And it's a horrendously complicated thing to do because the networks are not, not easy and they're not typically well understood. But that's the path we think is worth exploring. And is there no way that tying these gene regulatory networks to the GWAS is sort of prohibitively complicated? It will be in certain situations. If, if the network is very, very complex, then I suspect there's not much utility in trying to do it that way. If the network is relatively straightforward or there are single changes within that network that have big effects, then I suspect it will be um, very useful. Ultimately, I think the only way to discover is to try it and see whether, how well it works. And also, we are moving into an era of personalized genomics and everyone will soon be able to access huge amounts of data about their own genetics. What, what impact do you think this, this new angle will have on human health? I think the first impact it will have is that it will cause a lot of stress. Um, I think the ability at the moment to get useful information out of such tests is not very high. 
the effects we're finding typically, I mean, there are exceptions, clearly breast cancer is a great example, but typically the effects we're finding are not big. Um, so you will discover that rather than being extremely unlikely to develop a particular disease, you're just very unlikely to develop it. Um, so I think the psychological stress is considerable, but nonetheless, the knowledge is useful. And ultimately, when we better understand the connection between polymorphism on the genetic level and phenotype, these things will be very useful to do and will have very uh, important impacts on public health from the perspective of screening, for example. Um, I personally don't think we're there yet for almost all diseases. Salmon gain a lot of attention from biologists, not just because they're an important food source, they also have rather interesting genetics. In salmon aquaculture in Tasmania, an entirely female stock is preferred for production, because in certain circumstances, males tend to reach sexual maturity too early, giving rise to poorer flesh quality. To achieve this, hormones are used to treat females so that they become phenotypically male. These sex-reversed females are then crossed with genetic females to produce an entirely female stock. But you first need to weed out the true males before they become sexually mature and worthless, and sex-specific genetic markers have not yet been identified in Atlantic salmon. With his team, Willie Davidson from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, went on the hunt for a sex-specific marker for this economically important fish. And not only did they find one, but it seems to jump around the genome. I called Willie to hear more. I think many people work on sex determination in fish mainly because of the diversity of systems that there are there. So, so where are we at with our understanding of sex determination in salmon? That's an important fish. Yes. So one of the things that we know is that we want to get fish which will grow quickly and will reach a market size before they become sexually mature. Temperature will affect sexual maturity, but it means that uh, you're putting more of the food into gonads rather than to muscle. And so in the likes of Tasmania, where they grow Atlantic salmon in aquaculture, the water temperatures are quite warm. And this means that uh, male fish will mature before they reach market size. So what they do is they try to make all-female fish. You uh, can treat fish with steroid hormones, and that will change their sex phenotype from their genotype. So they may be an XX, but if you give them androgens, they become phenotypically male. Then you can cross this male with a female, and all of the offspring will become female. Okay, so there are real practical reasons for aquaculturalists to tamper with the sex of their stock. Uh, but you said that they can do that with simple hormones. Why do they need to know the genetic markers of sex determination? So when you do this sex reversal, what you end up with is a mixture of true males and what we call neo-males, fish that have a female genotype but are actually phenotypically male. However, it's very difficult to tell the difference between a true male and a neo-male. We were hoping that we could do this with genetic markers that would be able to say, yep, this fish is a true male. We should cull it from the stock at the moment because we're really only interested in the neo-males. Phenotypically, you cannot tell them apart. Okay, so presumably what makes an animal a male or a female is quite complex, but it all starts with a sort of master switch, right? It all starts with the master switch, and then you can try and find ways to tamper 
with uh, the pathway once it's been initiated. So in a nutshell, you were looking at this population of Atlantic salmon for their sex-determining master switches. That's right. And when, when we started this project, the sex-determining master switch hadn't been identified in any of the salmonids. And so what we were looking for were genetic markers in general that would be able to identify male and female fish. We had done genetic mapping in Atlantic salmon before, and we had identified that the sex-determining locus was on chromosome 2. So we got genetic markers from chromosome 2, and we started to do family analysis. And lo and behold, we found that sex did not appear to be on chromosome 2. So we did a genome-wide scan, which is quite common these days, and we found that in this group of fish that we were working with, the sex-determining locus is actually on chromosome 6. Now, this was a bit of a surprise, but not too far-fetched because uh, the salmon that we're working with in Tasmania actually come from eastern Canada originally, from Nova Scotia, whereas the previous salmon we had worked on came from Europe. So we said, okay, we know it's now in chromosome 6. Let's go and do the rest of the families. But when we used the markers from chromosome 6 on other families, uh, it didn't give the expected results. And we found that actually the sex-determining locus in some of these families was on chromosome 2. Well, that was very, very bizarre. Because normally you find that there's a sex chromosome and you don't find the sex locus, if you like, jumping around the genome. Well, we then screened a lot of the families in the broodstock in the Tasmanian system, and we found yet another locus. So that we found that the sex-determining locus was on chromosome 3 in a couple of families. So here you have three sex-determining loci all in the same species. This was only the second time that this had ever been identified before. So we then pursued it further, and we, while we were doing this project, the sex-determining gene from rainbow trout was identified by a French group, Jan Gigan's group. So the thought was that it would be the same sex-determining gene in Atlantic salmon as it is in rainbow trout. We tested for the presence of the, this SDY, the sex-determining gene, and found, yes, it is in each of the lineages where the sex locus is on chromosome 2 or chromosome 3 or chromosome 6. But we're still not exactly sure if SDY is indeed the sex-determining gene in Atlantic salmon. So we're thinking that what we want to do is to clone and sequence the SDY loci in the fish that have the sex locus on chromosome 2, 3, or 6. Compare those and ask, does this gene jump around the genome? For example, are there transposable elements which allow this particular gene to move about? And sometimes, when the gene moves, part of the gene doesn't go the whole way, and so we get fish that have part of the SDY gene, but in fact are female because they don't have the complete gene, but they look from a straightforward genetic analysis as though they ought to be male. And this is a complicating factor that, uh, well, quite frankly, we hadn't anticipated.
And what bearings does it have on the aquaculture industry? Does this make it easier or, or more, more difficult to separate these genders? Well, at the moment, we have a 100% success rate in predicting males and females from an SDY presence in fish that have already spawned. So that is, we actually know because they have bred that we know that they are true males or true females. But when we look at making predictions, we find that our prediction is about 98% accurate. And we think that's because this is a very mobile gene and somehow this gene is moving around the genome. Um, and as I said, this is uh, only the second time there's any, ever been any evidence for this occurring. And we would like to find out if it's more widespread. We're actually sequencing the Atlantic salmon genome. And we've been doing this with a group from Norway, British Columbia, and Chile. It is international consortium now for about four or five years. And the salmon genome is incredibly complex. It's full of large repetitive elements. The ancestor of the salmonids underwent a whole genome duplication. And so we have uh, duplicated genes and duplicated chromosomes. And we wonder if that is perhaps why the sex-determining gene has the ability to move around the genome. And uh, it's fascinating. It's great fun. And we hope that it will provide some insight into genome evolution in general. And that's it for this episode. See you again next month for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.